I must say that um, <clears throat> as I was preparing for this morning, I have come to the conclusion that preaching is a very daunting task. I don't know how Terry does it week after week, but he does it, and I'm thankful. Um, I was reading once about Charles Spurgeon. I am certainly no Charles Spurgeon, but I, I remember reading about him, and he would, it said he would, when he would walk up to his pulpit to preach, he would, every step he would take, he would pray something along the lines of, Holy Spirit, help me, Holy Spirit, help me. And I, I don't know how many steps there were, but were in his pulpit, but it was high. I only have two, and so maybe I should try it a few more times, but... So if you could pray for me, that would be a wonderful thing. I hope that I will do justice to the material that I'm going to present. So so before we go there, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We, We certainly are feeble. We're weak. You are strong. Your spirit is big and powerful and helps us, teaches us, and helps us to see the light of Scripture and only the ways that he can do. So I pray this morning that as we come to look into your word, that you would help us, Lord. We need it so desperately. Teach us this morning. Help us to be riveted by your word, by Jesus, that we would look to see him in the scriptures because they speak of him. Help us to see where we fall short, where we need work, also to be Encourage that you promise us to work in us by your power. What a tremendous promise. So we ask you these things so that your son would be exalted. We would be profitable children walking by the power of your spirit. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm almost 65 and my brain is becoming tired, so I don't, uh, don't understand that if you read in your announcements that I was in a different, it's a different topic in scripture, uh, it's not Deb, it was me. <laughs> I, uh, I decided last minute to change it up and do something a little bit different from what's listed in the announcement, so bear with me. But we're going to be spending time here this morning in Philippians chapter 2, and the title of the this sermon is Humility According to Jesus, defined by and seen in the life of Paul. So Philippians chapter 2, I'd like to read again Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 12. Have this mind among yourselves, by which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven 
and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'd like to just give you a, a very brief uh, overview or roadmap for our time together. I'll be looking at humility, obviously, from the text that I just read. Some contrast with humility and pride. <laughs> Examples of both. And this is not meant to uh, discourage us, but it's more to encourage us that we, in one sense, are not like Christ, but yet our goal is to be like Christ. And by his grace and power, he is making us to be like Christ. So there's great encouragement in that. But we, before we look at humility, according to Jesus, as found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 12, it's important first to look at why Paul writes this portion of Scripture to the church at Philippi. And I think, as I look at Fellowship Bible Church over the years, I think we're, we can be very much like the church at Philippi, which is a, a great thing. Philippi, the church of Philippi was a, it, from reading, it sounds like a wonderful church. Certainly had weaknesses like we do, but if you look at, we'll look at Paul's wording here in a few minutes about just some of the words that he uses about the church and his relationship to them. And the other thing I want to look at is, is why it's vital for us to pay close attention to what Paul writes, lest we fall into the same situation that the, Philippi, the Philippians were in, in some ways. Well, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 through 7, Peter writes, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So let's look at some, some background to Philippi. Look at some background to help put Paul's words in their proper setting here. Well, we know from chapter 2, verse 3, that there was a there was rivalry and conceit within the church that was prevalent. This selfish ambition and conceit was causing disunity and strife within the church, and Paul's instruction to the church is to be humble. Of all the sins that cause church splits, it's lack of unity within the church that is the big one. That's what does it. You know, we've seen some of that here over the years that people uh, have different ideas as to how maybe the leadership should go uh, in, in shepherding the church uh, and become divisive and, and, dis, and discontent with what God has ordained. They're missing the big picture of God's design for his church through his leaders. And eventually, they, some leave quietly, some leave with a stir, and and the church continues to, to move on. We've seen that here. And I'm just so grateful that uh, what a blessing this church is to me. It's been <clears throat> over the years. God is good. <clears throat> so a little bit of background about the city of Philippi. Uh, basically, Philippi was a wealthy, privileged, and tax-free Roman colony. Can you imagine 
being tax-free. You know, New Hampshire is not as bad as some states, but say if you lived in Massachusetts, right? Taxachusetts, as it's, it's jokingly referred to. Can you imagine, even here, living tax-free? What a, what a blessing that would be. Unfortunately, living tax-free, uh, that kind of a blessing in the, the city of Philippi brought on some serious sins of arrogance, pride, affluence, right? If you notice, you, if you are in, with, a, with people who are fairly affluent and productive and rich, they are, generally speaking, now maybe not generally, somewhat can be very arrogant, prideful, you know, do you know who I am kind of air about them sometimes? I don't know if you've run into that ever. I have. I worked at a company years ago uh, with a lot of very successful people. Some of my peers were very successful, well-educated, much more than I was, and uh, much higher on the, the, uh, the employment rung and the uh, affluent scale. And just to hear them speak and talk was like, you know, they were like, it's like they were God, you know, like they created the universe sometimes, you know, it was an engineering thing where, where we make stuff, you know, and we design stuff and we're the, hey, we're it, you know, and um, as engineering and that, that would be the attitude. And it was just, it's there, it's there. It's not, not hard for us to fall into that, that trap ourselves. And, and so, uh, but Philippi was a, a wealthy, privileged, tax-free colony, the height of its, in the height of production, at Philippi, uh, history says that they uh, gold was a was a big uh, a big natural resource, and they would produce by today's standards about 64 billion in gold per year. A lot of money. I don't even I can't even imagine what that looks like, but it's a lot of money. And so it was a very rich uh, community. Uh, Philippi was uh, much, received this much coveted. Uh, Ius Italicum. My Latin is a little rusty, so bear with me. But this involved uh, numerous privileges, uh, chief of which was the immunity of its territory from taxation, as I said. So imagine that. They were privileged, and the Roman colony of Philippi knew it very well. They were affluent, they were successful, and without a doubt, very proud people. The Philippians were people of their culture, and in the same way, we are people of our culture. Affluence often exposes the, the pride, really, that already exists in our heart. Mark 7, Jesus uh, is describing uh, the, where sin comes from, and he tells them a whole list of sins, and he says it doesn't come from without, it comes from within, and one of those sins is pride, is within our own hearts. As you read Philippians, you'll pick up on problems that Paul has to address, such as envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, and conceit. And we are not immune from these issues. So we must always be on guard to maintain a spirit of unity here. Well, Paul builds his letter to the Philippians very carefully. He, as he writes to them, he, he sees them as First of all, his dear friends, he clearly indicates that his goals and his, what his goals are and addresses their struggles in his letter. Paul loved the church at Philippi and is writing to them to provide encouragement in their progress in living out their faith. 
and to correct some struggles within the church. Paul had dear friends and close relationships at Philippi. Notice in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, you look at the phrases that Paul uses are clearly demonstrative of his close, intimate, personal, loving relationship with this church. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And then if you go further on, he's making his prayer with joy. Further on, he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. There was, a, there was this continuation, a longevity that Paul had in his relationship with the church at Philippi. And then he goes on, he says, I am sure of this. He had, he had strict confidence in the Philippian church of their progress. He says in verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you. You know, I, 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 I'm kind of liking these words, these words of, uh, of feeling. Uh, last couple of few weeks ago, I talked about uh, Psalm 88, and the, it's just dripping, flowing with emotion. And, you know, for a long time and many times in the Christian church, uh, conservative Christianity, we, we, use the, we look at the word feeling, we sort of recoil at that, feelings, emotions. I'm not. I'm not. I'm going to guide them by the Word of God. We are, we are told to do that, control our, our, our lives and thinking. But, you know, God infuses us, wires us with emotion. And we should embrace it. We should love it. We should enjoy it. You know, we, you know, we just, someone just lost a loved one. Emotion is real. It's full. It's, it's rich. It's helpful to express our emotions. And here's Paul with these, these Philippian believers expressing these words of deep feeling and emotion and friendship and love and kindness towards them. I love it. He says, he moves on in the text, he says, uh, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. And he goes on at the end of that little section in verse 7, he says, I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. What language of dear and sweet fellowship. This church was helpful to Paul in many ways. They supported him with gifts for his ministry, even out of their poverty. Even those who were poor within the church gave to help Paul. They helped him in other areas of his ministry and supported him in many ways. So at this point in time, the Philippians and Paul have this close relationship. And in verses, uh, in chapter 1, 9 through 22, we see seven goals for a united church. Seven goals to have a united church. And he, Paul, if you read along with it, read along in it with me through it, I'm not going to look at every word, every verse all the way through, but I just want to highlight some of the things that Paul, in these seven goals, he makes it his prayer. He prays these goals, right? This is his prayer for the church. And I would encourage you very much to, as you read Scripture, to pray Scripture. You know, pray Scripture as you read through it. Make it into a prayer. Make it personal with God. And so he goes on, he says in, in chapter 1, 9 through 11, he says, it is my prayer. He says, uh, and I think it's a great model for us to pray. First thing we see here, he is, he's praying about this abounding love. He says that your love may abound more and more 
with knowledge and discernment. You see the love there that he's talking about is it's primed, it's controlled by knowledge, the knowledge of Scripture. Also, with all discernment. It's not this just willy-nilly, all over the place prayer. It's a prayer with knowledge, and it's a prayer with wisdom. He's praying with wisdom for these Philippians, and we ought to do the same. The second thing we see him praying for is this striving for excellence. How are you going to know what excellence is? Going back to the Word of God. Tempered by knowledge, tempered by a discernment, striving for excellence, excellence for the reason of, in verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. And then the third one we see, he is praying for their purity, their sanctification, to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He has an eschatological view looking towards the future. He wants to pray to the goal, which is to be like Christ, because one day he is coming and we will stand before him. The fourth thing we see here is that they will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And to the glory and praise of God. See, Paul was, now if you know Paul, he's in prison, and people are maligning him, right? And I don't know what I would do if I were in Paul's condition. I, I, I hope I would be like Paul and be joyful in that. But, he, but Paul doesn't, he's not one to let himself get bogged down with his circumstances. He, in earthly problems, he gets right to the purpose of of his, his ministry here. He goes from spiritual realities to practical living. And that's kind of what, throughout his letters, that's Paul's pattern in a lot of his epistles. He would, he would get to the theology, and then he would get to how it affects us, how we live. Get to the theology about Christ and how we should live it out. Over and over again, you see this in Ephesians, Galatians, all those little epistles are just full and rich of such great, sweet theology that God has done for us, and is doing for us, for his glory. And then he tells us how to live it out. Ephesians, right, talks about all the wonders of God in those first, uh, first chapter. And then he tells us that we're dead and trespassed and sins. We can't please God without his grace. And then he says, because of that, you can do all of these things, family relationships, work relationships, putting on the armor, fighting the fight. It's so rich. I love it. I love the scriptures like that, especially in our dark world with so much, so much darkness and, and turmoil and corruption around us, we have a God that we can look to who has everything under his control. Well, so Paul, we see, doesn't really get bogged down with the problems of life, even in prison, even being uh, insulted and maligned and, 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 and taking it all. Uh, he addresses the problem and he points to Christ, the cross of Christ, and what that accomplished. We would say about Paul today, if we were to use it in our, in our own words, he's, he was a kind of a, a big picture kind of guy. You know, he always saw the big picture, and he always and he dressed these little things in the, in the way. You know, again, I was in engineering. We would meet and talk about projects that needed to be done. This is the big picture. And then we would go off and design things, a lot of details, a lot of intricate things, and come back and then achieve the goal. Well, Paul was like that. He could look at the plan, the big, the big building plan, and know all about the details and what it was going to look like at the end. And so, Paul here instructs them, and us, basically, to think like Christ and to live like Christ. He simply instructs them to do this, and he, Paul's goal in life was to see Christ exalted in everything. 
every facet of life. Well, in, in, uh, the fifth thing we see in his prayer is in verse 18, Paul's desire for Christ was, was for Christ to be preached. That was his main objective. He desired the Philippians to look beyond personal attacks involving envy and rivalry, and Paul's goal was to live and preach the gospel. Can you say that? Can you say that about your own life? Can I say that about my own life? I, I say I can't always say that's the case. I can't. You, how do you live with the, the irritations you experience with other Christians? Yes, other Christians. <laughs> right? You rub shoulders with one another, differences of opinion, differences of viewpoints, how you should school your kids, should you do, you know, whatever, where you should go, where you shouldn't go. You know, different opinions, rubbing shoulders with one another. That's our goal, is to, to do that well. Do you see that the goal is to live the gospel in all circumstances? Uh, in, in chapter 1, verse 16, we, Paul writes, he says, I am put here for the defense of the gospel, period. That's it. End of story. Boilerplate theology right there. And Paul's reply to, to prison, envy, and rivalry, it's kind of, so what? Get over it, right? Move on in what is the main thing. Uh, put on humility, he says. Uh, in the ISV version of this verse, uh, Philippians 1.8, it says, it, right, it goes this way. But so what? But so what? Just this, that in every way, whether by false or true motives, the Messiah is being proclaimed. Because of this, I rejoice and will continue to rejoice. Yeah, what a perspective. What a perspective. I, I got to be more like Paul. You know. Well, the sixth thing we see in 122 is Paul's desire was a fruitful labor for their progress and joy and exaltation of Christ. And, num and the seventh thing we see here in Paul's list is that Paul was driven to see the church united. And he gives instruction on unity three times within four chapters in this epistle. The first one we see is instruction on unity and courage and in view of envy and rivalry within the body. We see that in, in chapter 1, verse 27 through 30. The second instruction on unity in, in humility is, is, is in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, unity and humility towards those in the church. And a third instruction we see is, is instruction on standing firm in, uni in unity, and that's in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Philippians, uh, get this, Philippians uh, 4, 2, he names names. He talks about Euodia and Syntyche, to have the same attitude in the Lord. Apparently, there were some issues between these two, and they didn't have the same attitude. They were not united people. And so for Paul to mention names, it must have been a serious problem. He addresses them both by name. A lack of uni unity and humility was a problem at Philippi, and those two individuals were probably a big part of it. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 14, he, he goes on there. He talks about, he says, if there's any encouragement, he uses the word comfort. If there's any comfort, love, 
He goes on, he uses uh, any affection or sympathy, joy. He says, be of one mind. Be of one mind in love. And so, what an encouraging language that Paul uses as you scan that text. And this idea of the word if here, if, uh, in the translation, uh, one, one uh, study tool says this about this idea of if here. He says it's a, it's a uh, and maybe uh, you Greek scholars, you can maybe correct that if I'm wrong. Feel free, I'm, I'm open. I'm open, please help me. But uh, he says this, if, he says the word if is the translation of a conditional particle referring to a fulfilled condition. One could translate since or in view of the fact the four things mentioned in verse 1 are not hypothetical in their nature. They are facts. So you could write it this way. Philippians 2, 1 through 14. So since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love, since there is participation in the Spirit, since there is affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So you see, if, if since all of these things have happened, are, are happening because of Jesus Christ and our salvation, then something else should be happening as a result of this condition. Notice, because of what God has done in saving us, we have these blessings from him. First, we have, number one, encouragement in Christ. Number two, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit. Number three, and four, affection and sympathy. These have all been given to us in Christ because of the cross. So again, Paul says one thing the Philippians need is unity. Same mind, same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Another word to look at in this text is fulfill. Be is to be taken in the sense of complete or fullness and joy, meaning cheerfulness or a having a calm Calm delight. Paul is saying here to put away disunity and be active in these other things. And then I will have cause to rejoice exceedingly. Be like-minded literally is to, to think the same thing. It refers to uh, a general harmony that should exist among them. This is defined and shown in three basic elements. Number one is having the same love. It, it, these words are right out of your text. Having the same Love or unity of affection. The second thing is being of one accord or like-minded. And the third thing of one mind, literally thinking one thing. Thinking one thing. We have, here we have what is called a, the tautology of earnestness. If you want to be a, use a fancy, a fancy phrase here, it's simply, it's repetition to show gravity, importance here. We see this in other places in scriptures where the writers use Repetition of a, a phrase or a word to drive a point of importance. We see it in Isaiah 6 where Isaiah says that God is holy. No, he doesn't say that. He says God is holy, holy, holy. Meaning, take note, pay attention, important fact here. Get it down. And then we see it also in the words of Jesus, where Jesus would often use the, the words, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you. Pay attention to what I'm saying. Very important. Notice the reputation. Unity in the church is vital. Disunity is simply pride on display. This idea of uh, ambitious 
selfish ambition in chapter 2, verse 3, where Paul uses the words selfish ambition or conceit. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This is the idea of having this, this empty glory, vain glory. Some of your versions may translate this word as vain glory. It's empty, empty pride, uh, selfish ambition or selfishness and empty conceit. The selfish ambition and conceit was, was causing a, a disunion strife in Paul. Remedy is simply a call to be humble. It's a desire to put one's self forward. You get the idea that this, this person is in it for themselves. And he says, do nothing from this idea of selfish ambition. The next term that Paul uses is conceit. It's this groundless self-esteem or empty pride, empty glorying that we are to put away. Um, in, in, in other words, other words used to describe this word are conceit, uh, is illusion or delusion, error. Uh, one philosopher, Epicurus, uh, loved to use this word delusion. He described it as the word conceit. And the, when a person is conceited or involved in empty pride, they're delusional, he would say. They're delusional. Have you ever been delusional? I must say I've been delusional. <laughs> I've been prideful. I've been conceited. You know, and I think we can all relate that we are at times very delusional, thinking that we're something when we're really nothing in God's eyes. Not saying that we don't have value. We've been man. Man is is created in the image of God. That's important. That's big. But God is so much bigger, right? So again, Paul is uh, encouraging us to be, exhorting us to be of one mind. So I'd like to look here in the New Testament uh, area of uh, what this looks like a little bit more detail, and it's called uh, being a Pharisee, right? Paul uh, was a Pharisee. Jesus always locked horns with the Pharisees, oftentimes locked horns with the Pharisees uh, in his, his dealings here on the earth. And um, these people found the New Testament known as Pharisees. They were religious leaders of the day. They were the elite theologians of the day, and they, they looked it. They dressed it, they acted it, they, they put on a face, they put on clothing, they, they wanted people to see who they were. And so Jesus was, was far from that. He, he came to earth, he was just a humble, humble carpenter. You know, worked with fishermen, talked to prostitutes, uh, looked like everybody else, had the same dirty feet, dusty sandals like everybody else. Nothing special to look at. Even Isaiah tells us that he was not much to look at at all. And so he would lock horns with the Pharisees, and Jesus called them out on their selfish ambition and conceit many times. And if you turn to Matthew 23 here, we'll just do a very, a very quick flyover of some of the points to point out the idea of what the Pharisees looked like. And I I always, uh, you know, I want to be careful when I, when I look at the Pharisees and talk about the Pharisees because, you know, they've been given a significant amount of print in the pages of Scripture, not to glorify them or to even uh, 
point out their, their good deeds because there weren't many that had, had them. Uh, Nicodemus was a, was, seemed like a humble Pharisee. There were some, I'm sure, that loved God, but many of them were very prideful and, and conceited. And, uh, but in Matthew 23, 1 through 39, we take a quick look at the Pharisees to see how selfish they were. Uh, and there may be a temptation, temptation for us to judge them, but be careful because we can be little Pharisees on our own. Phariseeism is in every heart. But the first one we look at is in Matthew 23, 3. They preach, but they don't practice. They preach, but they don't practice. And verse 4, they place unbiblical expectations on others, but are inconsistent in their own lives. The second thing we see in verse 5 is this pharisaical pride, or pride in general, really, does works to be seen by others. The proud, they brag and toot their own horn, and the proud talk about themselves. Pride is often very self-referencing. I want to say a thing about self-referencing pride. Two words. Social media. I'm going to go there for a minute, because it's I, because it's in the text, <laughs> kind of. You know, I'm a, I'm a lurker on Facebook. I don't really, I post once in a while or something, but I don't have the time, really, to do that. I, I, it's interesting, some of it. But I do notice on some pages, it seems like there's just constant flow of how wonderful I am, how many wonderful things I can do. I'm not going to say people mean to do that. That's their motive to do that, but it's there. I would challenge you and recommend you, who are, all of you who are on Facebook, some of them aren't. I know Randy never was. You know, we, we knew that. <laughs> if you're watching Randy, sorry. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I just would just really be careful on Facebook, Instagram. I think, is that another one where you can post stuff about yourself? Right? Is that? I'm not sure. I, I'm not. I'm not really a, 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 a social media guy. I just lurk and and prowl around, you know. But I would just recommend be very careful, uh, you who do post and are on there a lot. Watch your Facebook page. Be careful. So. In Matthew six two, he says, "Thus, when you give a need to the needy." Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. See, the motive was to be praised. We can do that, and that may not be our motive, but we're calling praise to ourselves. Well, like it or not, it's happening. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. And I would add, and it's in the here and now, that's it. You want your reward? You want your praise? You want your glory? This is where you get it. You're not going to hear it from Jesus. You're not going to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, when you toot your horn and, and, and bloviate about yourself, right? Or when I bloviate, when I bring praise to myself. I, I'm not saying you as you. It's me too. I'm in it. I'm here. I do it. Catch myself. But I'm not getting praise from Jesus over that. That's it. You get it now. Vanish. Poof, it's gone. Vanity. Empty. Like the steam over tea kettle. I want to be praised by Jesus. That's what I want. I want to hear, well done. 
And so I have to be humble. I have to be humble to get that. That's the trade. That's the trade-off. Well, the third thing we see in 23.6 is pride loves the place of honor. Loves to be honored. Ever been there? I've been there and probably will be there. You know, likes honor. Like, do you know who I am? Do you, do you, oh, you know, well, let me tell you. Let me tell you who I am. Let me tell you how wonderful I am. Tell you my story. Here's a list of my accomplishments, my awards, my degrees, my, you know, whatever. It goes on and on. Well, Proverbs 27, 2 says this, let another praise you and not your own mouth. A stranger and not your own lips. And then in 27, 20, 21, he says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. How do you pass that test? What do you do with praise? What do you do with your own praise? What do you do with praise from others? Does it just say, in and out, gone, fine, not going not, not to let my ego get inflated, thank you for that encouragement, or do we just take it in and say, yeah, that's about time someone recognizes me. It's about time. I'm, that's good. I'm thankful for that. That's a dangerous place to go. Well, the fourth thing, pride loves titles. In verse 7, and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi. Well, how does that work today? We don't, around here, we don't call each other rabbi. But how about, you know, well, some, some religions, father, reverend, pastor, teacher, deacon, elder, whatever. You know, love, people that love, some people love titles like that. Humble people don't need a title. The fifth thing we see, pride is self-exalting. The Pharisees thought they were above others. Jesus said, verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. There's promises there. Which one which promise do you want Jesus to keep for you? I want to be exalted in the right time and in the right way. The sixth thing we see here is proud, the proud twist the scriptures to make it mean what they want it to mean. Verse 20, uh, chapter 23, verse 16, he says, woe to you. Now that's a, when you see woe, especially coming from Jesus, the prophet's, did it too, and it meant, the, it meant the same thing. But when Jesus says to you, face to face, woe to you, mister, watch out. That is a severe, severe warning. He says, woe to you, blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. See, they were twisting what the scriptures were saying and meaning to uh, make it, Form what they wanted it to form. The humble person is teachable. He takes the scripture, learns from the scripture, and, li and lives it, lives by the scripture. That's humility. Okay, teach me. I'm not going to try to make it say what it doesn't say here to justify my sin. I'm going to just take it and, and, and take it and learn from it. Be humble. The seventh thing, pride majors in the minors. In verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you have ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Wow, what a rebuke. 
Have you ever done that? You thought the thing you were doing was so important, but it was really, you, you, you're failing on the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and kindness and goodness and those kinds of things. We are all susceptible. Then the eighth thing is pride loves to portray a, a positive self-image of itself. Loves a, we, all want to, we, we all want to have a positive self-image. No, let's, not, let's not beat around the bush here. Right? We all want that. We're all, it's all in us. The humble don't care to. They don't care. We, the humble don't care about that, a self-image. Don't care. I'm going to obey God. I'm going to do what God says, and I don't care what people think. You know, Paul listed his, um, well, verse 25 to 28, the proud like to look good in appearance, but within they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. They are full of greed and self-indulgence. You know, Paul in Philippians listed his accomplishments. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He goes, oh, tribe of Benjamin. He, he just goes on and on and on. And at the end, he goes, rubbish, trash, manure pile. I don't care. I don't care. I want, to be, I want Christ. That's what I want. Not the Pharisees, you know. Nine, number nine, the spiritual spiritual pride is a, has a. I would never do that attitude. I, I can't believe they're doing that. You know, this us and them. We we do this, but we don't do that. They do that. Oh, we would never do that. You know, I, I would never sin like David with Bathsheba. <laughs> Be careful. Be careful. You are when you go and you kick that door open. You have just become a Pharisee of the highest order. He says. He says, verse 30, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not taken part with them in shedding of blood of the prophets. Oh, yes, you would have. Yes, you would have. They were about to crucify Jesus, the prophet of all the prophets. Who were they kidding? Uh, uh, we would never do that. Yeah, you, you're going to do it, Pharisees. You're going to do it. You're going to part of it. The blood of Jesus. And then number 10, pride is a name dropper. And shows partiality. Luke 3 8. We have Abraham as our father. You know, they drop the name of Abraham. They're all they're so they're so righteous. Now the Corinthians had the same problem, right? First Corinthians 1 uh, 12. What I mean is that each one of you says, Oh, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Today it's I, John Calvin, oh, I follow John Calvin, or or John Piper. Yeah, I, I love, oh, he's my man, or John MacArthur, or, or you know, an owl, a deacon, teacher, whatever. You get the idea. You know, we drop names as if this is so important, and they're just people. They're just people like us. You know, they leave the restroom smelling the same way as everybody else does, right? It's not what goes into the man who defiles them. It's what comes out. Very graphic illustration of what we are. But humility acts just the opposite. It's not partial. Doesn't have preferences. Doesn't doesn't do that. Just plugs along in the gospel. Well, back to Philippians chapter two, verse three. What's the solution and remedy for vainglory and pride? Well, it's humility. It's humility. Uh, Paul continues on in verse three. But in humility, in, in this idea of humility is this this lowliness of mind. You know, you're not you don't have to grovel in the dirt. And say, oh, I'm such a Oh, I'm so awful, you know, but that's not the idea. It's just having this humility, this, this seeing ourselves as lowliness. And how are we going to do that is by looking to who God is, studying the attributes of God, 
the eternal attributes and perfections of God, as the Puritans used to call them. As we see those, pure, those, those perfections of God, and we look at ourselves under the light of Scripture and what the Scriptures talk about us, it's going to cause you to be humble. Because God is big, and we are small, very small. And by comparison, we are insignificant. Uh, Isaiah says that all of the nations are like dust on a scale. All of the nations, think of the nations in the world, dust in God's eyes. You see how, how really small we really are? Because it causes us to be humble. Humility expresses both its lowest state of the man who lives in poor and petty relations, like a slave, basically, a slave. This term is a, is a meaning of insignificance. It carries the idea of a, a servile, lowly, weak, and poor mindset. So I want to ask us all this question. Do you, do you see yourself this way? Are you humble? If you say, yes, I'm humble, you've just lost it. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> um, no, but you know what I'm saying. It's, uh, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the, are the humble. You see, God requires humility, and by nature, we are not humble. We are prideful. How can you tell if, 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 uh, if anybody, if you are truly humble? Well, Paul gives us three ways to tell here. Uh, the first thing we see is attitudes towards ourselves. We will have a low view of ourselves. We will have a servile, lowly, weak, and poor attitude about ourselves. The second thing is we will have an attitude towards others. We will count others more significant than ourselves. The third thing will be demonstrated in our actions, how we live and act on the truth as doers of the word. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests. It's important that we do that. We need to look at our own interests, obviously, but also to the interests of others. Sort of intentionally go out of your way to, for the interests of others. You know, you think about your family, husbands. Do you intentionally look out for the interests of your wife? Always work for improvement. Been thinking about my own marriage, my own wife, and I can improve. Ask her, she'll tell you. <laughs> she knows better than I do, you know. Or wives, uh, are you are you looking out for the interest of your husbands in a in a real and meaningful way to, to them. And I, and I say it to, about the husbands and wives, do we, do we look at each other, other's interests uh, with, with, with wisdom and understanding? You know, we are told it's meant to, to dwell with our wives in an understanding way. That will take, you know, that will take us into eternity. I, I'm convinced as a married man. But that's okay. You know, we, 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 we try it, you know. We work on it, right? That's, that's our goal, man, is to, to dwell with our wives in an understanding way. And so we, do we do that? Do we try to, to, uh, to do that? And wives, do you do the same thing? Do you, are you intentional about the interests of your husbands? It works both ways, the two-way street, uh, and we need that. Children, listen, children. Stop coloring and listen. Children, do you, 
Do you look out for the interests of your brothers and sisters? Do you, do you intentionally, that's kind of a big word, do you, um, do you make ways and think about ways to help your brothers and sisters that are meaningful to them? That's very important. God tells us to do that. We have to look out for the interests of all of us. Singles, how about you with your peers? Do you, do you look for ways to uh, improve upon your relationship with your peers in meaningful ways? Are you intentional about that? Well, how can we do this? Well, it's by looking to Christ, our perfect example, 2.5. Have this mind, takes thinking, takes uh, contemplation, takes being intentional, takes having a focus, takes looking for ways. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, we need to have the mind of Christ when we interact with one another in this idea of hum perfect humility and good humility. Um, what mind? What mind is, is Paul referring to here, or attitude? Well, the first thing we see in verse 6, who, think about it, who, though he was in the form of God, stop and think about that for a minute. He was in the form of God, in his glorious heaven, right? And he, he did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. He let it go and came here to die, right? We just celebrated the incarnation, and now we're talking about, this morning we're talking about the crucifixion and resurrection and atonement. He came, he let go of what was his, his glorious place and came to earth to die. He didn't count Equality with God, something to be held on to. He didn't see the need to cling to what was his. But willingly gave up the glory that he deserved. You think about it, so I'm going to tell you, you know, about this idea of the incarnation and how, you know, Jesus walked the earth and everybody that he saw or saw him, should have worshipped him on their knees, bowing some way, and he deserved it, and he knew he deserved it. But he didn't think it, he didn't count it to be grasped. I think I deserve something, and I get into an attitude about it. Jesus deserved it, and he, he didn't have an attitude about it. He didn't see it held on to. I want to ask you, what do you intentionally do to be humble towards another person on a daily basis? I have to ask myself the same questions. I fail miserably sometimes, but so we need to cling. Do we need to cling to what is ours? No. The second thing in verse 7, he emptied himself. How? What does that look like? Well, it tells us in the, in the text, he, he says he took on a form of a servant. The first thing, he, he, became, he took on a servanthood. He took it on. He, he, he worked on taking it on. He, you know, it wasn't who he was in his glory, but he took it on. And then the second thing in verse 8, he humbled himself. He took on a servant, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. 
he by giving himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, John Piper said this about humility, this idea. He says, the only people who can truly magnify the Lord are people who acknowledge their lowly state and are overwhelmed by the condescension of a magnificent God. Good word. Are you overwhelmed by the con- condescension of Jesus today? When was the last time you or I took the form of a common servant for somebody else? Is it my way of life? Do, you, do I serve others? You know, I think as I, as I look at the church here, you know, we're not perfect, so I don't want to come across as saying, oh, well, we're it, you know. But I, I, I do look at the church as one who shepherds the church, and, and Terry, I think, would also agree that this is a good place to be. You know, there are so many people who serve here. It's so encouragement. So much encouragement. It's just so, it's, you, you know, the church makes it easy, really, for, for, for the leaders to lead here. The elders, the deacons, it's just, you know, we, we meet once a month and we talk about, you know, the, just the needs of the church. We go family by family and we, we discuss that. And it's just so good to be in a church that is, is, is striving after obeying and, and serving Christ. And so I just want to encourage you in that thing just keep on keep on doing that it's so it's just so wonderful and easy really to serve here uh there is a lot of work involved but it's like yeah you know that's life right his work just do it because god gives it to you to do and he gives you the the grace and the the power and time to do it so um but i think i think fbc is a good place to be uh, but then there are always some people, you know, you, you come into contact with, and, and I try to listen to people and, and hear their story, and, and, you know, in counseling, you have, to, you have to do that. You have to be a good listener. I, I, I try to do that. Um, my wife is very helpful. You're not listening to me. Repeat what I just said to you. It's like, I always, don't always do that. But she helps me. She's very good. I, I, I'm just so thankful. But being a good listener, I hear people, uh, trying to be a good listener, I hear people uh, do this kind of stuff. Um, well, no one does that for me. You know, no, I, I don't, I don't, I don't sense that ministry in the church for me. Uh, they're, they're me, me people, you know, what about me? What about me? What about me? And, uh, but you know what? First thing with that, that kind of phrase, no one does that for me. No one is not the standard. Jesus is the standard, right? The second thing is, yes, someone else is doing stuff for you. His name is Jesus, Right? You just think about that for a minute. The third thing is it doesn't matter if people aren't doing stuff for you. It doesn't really matter. It really doesn't. God commands us to esteem others more highly than ourselves. I'm to esteem others more highly than me. So if you're doing something for me or not, I shouldn't really care. I'm, to, I'm not called to, to worry about that. I'm called to serve others. We are all called to serve others, not be served. So if everybody is doing the serving, I will be served, right? But I shouldn't, shouldn't gravitate towards that. If it doesn't happen, okay, there's something I have to learn today, that I'm not being served, and that's part of God's perfect plan for me today. Listen, husbands, we, we live with wives who don't meet our expectations. I do, but that's not, that's not about me. That, that's something I have to learn. My expectation, if it's not happening, is too high that day. So I have to just take what God has for me that day and say, it's a perfect day, right? I don't always do that. 
right? I can be frustrated. I can be irritated. Uh, but, hey, God is saying, look, this is my day for you. Take it. Love it. This is what I have for you. It's perfect. I'm, I'm, I'm sanctifying you. Enjoy it. That's supposed to be my attitude. The fourth thing we see, so no one is not the standard when you're not feeling it, right? Yes, someone else is doing something for you. Jesus is. He's giving you air this moment, number one. Third thing, it doesn't matter. That's not the goal. God, that's not God's goal. My goal is to esteem others. And the fourth thing is, if you are a Christian, you ought to be intentionally doing it as a lifestyle. We're called to do that. It's how, why? Because that's how Jesus lived. And would it be like Jesus? See, the world says, think highly of yourself. God says, think less of yourself. We say, I want to be exalted. God says, no, you need to be humble. Right? We see it all over the place. Worldly philosophy seeks to exalt itself. And you see it this way. This idea of self is inserted in every, everywhere. It's inserted as a good thing everywhere. You look these days. We think of self-esteem. Self-assurance, self-confidence, self-promotion, this I, me, my, our, this whole me monster thing. Oh, me, you know, it's all about me, you know, me world. Uh, Of us being self-made, self-taught, self-awareness, self-centered, self-love, self-sufficient, selfish ambition. It goes on and on. You can insert self in so many areas that it's so ridiculous. It's so wicked in many ways. See, the world says, he who dies with the most toys wins. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Right? Matthew 20, 26 to 28 says, to, for us to be, if we want to be great, then be a servant in God's eyes. The more you serve in God's eyes, the greater you are in God's eyes. The more you serve yourself in God's eyes, the less you are in God's eyes. Galatians 5.13, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Pretty clear command there. We ought to serve. Um, In Philippians, right, Jesus took the low place. He highly exalted him. And bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our problem, as well as the Philippians, is that our conceit and spiritual pride and desire for self is what causes disunity in the church and in the family and in the workplace, and everywhere else. See, it's that we want to be exalted. We want the knee to bow to us. We want tongues to confess us as master. We may not verbalize it that way, but boy, we can live it that way easily, often. Sometimes without even realizing it or seeing it. We are masters at thinking it is even in subtle subtle ways comes out in so many subtle ways. Well, God will have none of it. He's not going to have any of it. Only Christ deserves and will be exalted. Uh, notice four unique results of Christ's humility in Philippians 2, 9 through 10. One, God highly exalted him. Two, he bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
Three, every knee will bow one day to Jesus everywhere, heaven, earth, and in, under the earth. And the third, the fourth thing, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue will confess that. What a glorious day. So do you see Paul's heartbeat in Philippians 1, 20 and 21? Uh, it is his eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that I, with full coverage, courage, will now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether in life by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die, to die is gain. So Paul concludes here, a time. He concludes in uh, chapter 2, verse 12, with two commands. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, here it is, work out your own salvation. Work it out with fear and trembling, with respect and trembling before God. He says, he goes on, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And the second thing we see here, do all things without grumbling or disputing. See, we will all stand before Christ one day and give an account for how we live out this humility according to Jesus. Pretty sobering thought, considering the coverage of the scriptures that we've just gone through. Um, how would you do if you had to stand before him today and give an, an answer for, as to how you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another out of First Peter 5? I'll close with this, this little uh, story. I love this story. It's so good. It's so encouraging. Church history tells us that William Carey is considered the father of modern missions. The man who spent his early years as a cobbler became one of the greatest linguists the church has ever known. It is reported that Carey translated parts of the Bible into as many as 24 Indian languages. When he first went to India, some regarded him with dislike and contempt. At a dinner party, a distinguished guest, hoping to humiliate Carey, said in a loud voice, I suppose, Mr. Carey, you once worked as a shoemaker. Carey humbly responded, saying this, no, your lordship, not a shoemaker, only a cobbler. See, Carey, he didn't claim pride. He didn't claim to make shoes, only mend them. At a, another time, someone was talking about Carey, and his reply was, quote, you have been speaking about William Carey. When I am gone, Say nothing about William Carey. Speak only about William Carey's Savior. John the Baptist said it simply in John 3, verse 30, that we should all memorize and take heed to. He must increase. I must decrease. Can you say that? Can you? That's an easy verse to remember, even if you have a bad memory like mine. He must increase, I must decrease. Let's pray.
Father, we want to thank you for dwelling with the lowly today. Thank you that you instruct us in your word. You teach us to be like Jesus. We ask you to help us to be humble. We don't ask you to humiliate us. We just ask you to humble us, help us to be like your son, to put on the, the role of a servant, to take it on, to look to, to serve others, to consider others more highly than ourselves, that we would be ones who are quick to, to bear that fruit, to, to show love and impartiality towards one another. Oh, we're, we're prone to wander. We're prone to pride and arrogance. So we pray that you'd help us with these days ahead to, to look towards you, to be humble like you, to hold one another accountable to the words we've looked at today throughout this year. How are we doing with our humility? To ask ourselves the questions, ask each other the questions, to pray for one another, pray for unity, keep unity in this church. We pray you'd do that so that your name would be exalted, the gospel would go forward, people would see people who are not hypocrites, but genuinely want to serve you and be like you, so that the gospel will go out in great boldness, and people will be wondered at the Master, the Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.